Section 7 of Good Sense. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. Good Sense by Paul Henri Thierry, Baron Dolbach. Translator Unknown. Section 7. Parts 76 through 80. 76. God has no right to punish man. The nature of man, it is said, was necessarily liable to corruption. God could not communicate to him impeccability, which is an inalienable attribute of his divine perfection. But if God could not make man impeccable, why did he give himself the pains to make man, whose nature must necessarily be corrupted, and who must consequently offend God? On the other hand, if God himself could not make human nature impeccable, by what right does he punish men for not being impeccable? It can be only by the right of the strongest, but the right of the strongest is called violence, and violence cannot be compatible with the justest of beings. God would be supremely unjust should he punish men for not sharing with him his divine perfections, or for not being able to be gods like him. Could not God at least have communicated to all men that kind of perfection of which their nature is susceptible? If some men are good, or render themselves agreeable to their God, why has not that God done the same favor, or given the same dispositions, to all beings of our species? Why does the number of the wicked so much exceed the number of the good? Why, for one friend, has God ten thousand enemies, in a world which it depended entirely upon him, to people with honest men? If it be true that in heaven God designs to form a court of saints, of elect, or of men who shall have lived upon earth conformably to his views, would he not have had a more numerous, brilliant, and honorable assembly, had he composed it of all men to whom, in creating them, he could grant the degrees of goodness necessary to attain eternal happiness? Finally, would it not have been shorter not to have made man than to have created him a being full of faults, rebellious to his creator, perpetually exposed to cause his own destruction by a fatal abuse of his liberty? Instead of creating men, a perfect God ought to have created only angels very docile and submissive. Angels, it is said, are free. Some have sinned, but at any rate all have not abused their liberty by revolting against their master. Could not God have created only angels of the good kind? If God has created angels who have not sinned, could he not have created impeccable men or men who should never abuse their liberty? If the elect are incapable of sinning in heaven, could not God have made impeccable men upon earth? 77. It is absurd to say that the conduct of God a mystery. Divines never fail to persuade us that the enormous distance which separates God and man necessarily renders the conduct of God a mystery to us, and that we have no right to interrogate our master. Is this answer satisfactory? 
since my eternal happiness is at stake, have I not a right to examine the conduct of God himself? It is only in hope of happiness that men submit to the authority of a God. A despot, to whom men submit only through fear, a master whom they cannot interrogate, a sovereign totally inaccessible, can never merit the homage of intelligent beings. If the conduct of God is a mystery, it is not made for us. Man can neither adore, admire, respect, nor imitate conduct in which everything is inconceivable, or of which he can often form only revolting ideas, unless it is pretended that we ought to adore everything of which we are forced to be ignorant, and that everything which we do not know becomes for that reason an object of admiration. Divines, you never cease telling us that the designs of God are impenetrable, that his ways are not our ways, nor his thoughts our thoughts, that it is absurd to complain of his administration of the motives and springs of which we are totally ignorant, that it is presumption to tax his judgments with injustice because we cannot comprehend them. But when you speak in this strain, do you not perceive that you destroy with your own hands all your profound systems whose only end is to explain to us the ways of the divinity which you say are impenetrable? Have you penetrated his judgments, his ways, his designs? You dare not assert it, and though you reason about them without end, you do not comprehend them any more than we do. If by chance you know the plan of God, which you wish us to admire, while most people find it so little worthy of a just, good, intelligent, and reasonable being, no longer say, this plan is impenetrable. If you are as ignorant of it as we are, have some indulgence for those who ingenuously confess they comprehend nothing in it, or that they see in it nothing divine. Cease to persecute for opinions, of which you understand nothing yourselves. Cease to defame each other for dreams and conjectures, which everything seems to contradict. Talk to us of things intelligible and really useful to men, and no longer talk to us of the impenetrable ways of God, about which you only stammer and contradict yourselves. By continually speaking of the immense depths of divine wisdom, forbidding us to sound them, saying it is insolence to cite God before the tribunal of our feeble reason, making it a crime to judge our master, divines teach us nothing but the embarrassment they are in, when it is required to account for the conduct of a God whose conduct they think marvelous only because they are utterly incapable of comprehending it themselves. 78. Ought we look for consolation from the author of our misery? Physical evil is commonly regarded as a punishment for sin. Diseases, famines, wars, earthquakes are means which God uses to chastise wicked men. Thus they make no scruple of attributing these evils to the severity of a just and good God. But do not these scourges fall indiscriminately upon the good and bad, upon the impious and devout, upon the innocent and guilty, 
How, in this proceeding, would they have us admire the justice and goodness of a being, the idea of whom seems comforting to so many wretches, whose brain must undoubtedly be disordered by their misfortunes, since they forget that their God is the arbiter, the sole disposer of the events of this world? This being the case, ought they not to impute their sufferings to him, into whose arms they fly for comfort? Unfortunate father! Thou consolest thyself in the bosom of providence for the loss of a dear child or beloved wife who made thy happiness. Alas! dost thou not see that thy God has killed them? Thy God has rendered thee miserable, and thou desirest thy God to comfort thee for the dreadful afflictions he has sent thee. The chimerical or supernatural notions of theology have so succeeded in destroying, in the minds of men, the most simple, dear, and natural ideas that the devout, unable to accuse God of malice, accustom themselves to regard the several strokes of fate as indubitable proofs of celestial goodness. When in affliction they are ordered to believe that God loves them, that God visits them, that God wishes to try them. Thus religion has attained the art of converting evil into good. A profane person said with reason, If God Almighty thus treats those whom he loves, I earnestly beseech him never to think of me. Men must have received very gloomy and cruel ideas of their God, who is called so good, to believe that the most dreadful calamities and piercing afflictions are marks of his favor. Would an evil genius, a demon, be more ingenious in tormenting his enemies than the god of goodness sometimes is, who so often exercises his severity upon his dearest friends? 79. God who punishes the faults which he might have prevented. What shall we say of a father who, we are assured, watches without intermission over the preservation and happiness of his weak and short-sighted children, and who yet leaves them at liberty to wander at random among rocks, precipices, and waters, who rarely hinders them from following their inordinate appetites, who permits them to handle, without precaution, murderous arms at the risk of their life? What should we think of the same father if, instead of imputing to himself the evil that happens to his poor children, he should punish them for their wanderings in the most cruel manner? We should say, with reason, that this father is a madman who unites injustice to folly. A god who punishes faults which he could have prevented is a being deficient in wisdom, goodness, and equity. A foreseeing God would prevent evil, and thereby avoid having to punish it. A good God would not punish weaknesses, which he knew to be inherent in human nature. A just God, if he made man, would not punish him for not being made strong enough to resist his desires. To punish weakness is the most unjust tyranny. Is it not calumniating a just God to say that he punishes men for their faults, even in the present life? How could he punish beings 
whom it belonged to him alone to reform, and who, while they have not grace, cannot act otherwise than they do? According to the principles of theologians themselves, man, in his present state of corruption, can do nothing but evil, since without divine grace he is never able to do good. Now, if the nature of man, left to itself, or destitute of divine aid, necessarily determines him to evil, or renders him incapable of good, what becomes of the free will of man? According to such principles, man can neither merit nor demerit. By rewarding man for the good he does, God would only reward himself. By punishing man for the evil he does, God would punish him for not giving him grace, without which he could not possibly do better. 80. What is called free will is an absurdity. Theologians repeatedly tell us that man is free, while all their principles conspire to destroy his liberty. By endeavoring to justify the divinity, they in reality accuse him of the blackest injustice. They suppose that without grace man is necessitated to do evil. They affirm that God will punish him because God has not given him grace to do good. Little reflection will suffice to convince us that man is necessitated in all his actions, that his free will is a chimera, even in the system of theologians. Does it depend upon man to be born of such or such parents? Does it depend upon man to imbibe or not to imbibe the opinions of his parents or instructors? If I had been born of idolatrous or Mohammedan parents, would it have depended upon me to become a Christian? Yet divines gravely assure us that a just God will damn without pity all those to whom he has not given grace to know the Christian religion. Man's birth is wholly independent of his choice. He is not asked whether he is willing or not to come into the world. Nature does not consult him upon the country and parents she gives him. His acquired ideas, his opinions, his notions, true or false, are necessary fruits of the education which he has received and of which he has not been the director. His passions and desires are necessary consequences of the temperament given him by nature. During his whole life his volitions and actions are determined by his connections, habits, occupations, pleasures, and conversations by the thoughts that are involuntarily presented to his mind. In a word, by a multitude of events and accidents which it is out of his power to foresee or prevent. Incapable of looking into futurity, he knows not what he will do. From the instant of his birth to that of his death, he is never free. You will say that he wills, deliberates, chooses, determines and you will hence conclude that his actions are free. It is true that man wills, but he is not master of his will or his desires. He can desire and will only what he judges advantageous to himself. He can neither love pain nor detest pleasure. 
it will be said that he sometimes prefers pain to pleasure, but then he prefers a momentary pain with a view of procuring a greater and more durable pleasure. In this case, the prospect of a greater good necessarily determines him to forego a less considerable good. The lover does not give his mistress the features which captivate him. He is not then master of loving or not loving the object of his tenderness. He is not master of his imagination or temperament. Whence it evidently follows that man is not master of his volitions and desires. But man, you will say, can resist his desires, therefore he is free. Man resists his desires when the motives, which divert him from an object, are stronger than those which incline him towards it. But then his resistance is necessary. A man whose fear of dishonor or punishment is greater than his love of money necessarily resists the desire of stealing. Are we not free when we deliberate? But are we masters of knowing or not knowing, of being in doubt or certainty? Deliberation is a necessary effect of our uncertainty respecting the consequences of our actions. When we are sure, or think we are sure, of these consequences, we necessarily decide, and we then act necessarily according to our true or false judgment. Our judgments, true or false, are not free. They are necessarily determined by the ideas we have received or which our minds have formed. Man is not free in his choice. He is evidently necessitated to choose what he judges most useful and agreeable. Neither is he free when he suspends his choice. He is forced to suspend it until he knows, or thinks he knows, the qualities of the objects presented to him, or until he has weighed the consequences of his actions. Man, you will say, often decides in favor of actions which he knows must be detrimental to himself. Man sometimes kills himself, therefore he is free. I deny it. Is man master of reasoning well or ill? Do not his reason and wisdom depend upon the opinions he has formed, or upon the confirmation of his machine? As neither one nor the other depends upon his will, they are no proof of liberty. If I lay a wager that I shall do or not do a thing, am I not free? Does it not depend upon me to do it or not? No, I answer. The desire of winning the wager will necessarily determine you to do, or not to do, the thing in question. But supposing I consent to lose the wager? Then the desire of proving to me that you are free will have become a stronger motive than the desire of winning the wager, and this motive will have necessarily determined you to do, or not to do, the thing in question. But, you will say, I feel free. This is an illusion that may be compared to that of the fly in the fable who, lighting upon the pole of a heavy carriage, applauded himself for directing its course. 
Man, who thinks himself free, is a fly, who imagines he has power to move the universe, while he is himself unknowingly carried along by it. The inward persuasion that we are free to do or not to do a thing is but a mere illusion. If we trace the true principle of our actions, we shall find that they are always necessary consequences of our volitions and desires, which are never in our power. You think yourself free because you do what you will. But are you free to will or not to will, to desire or not to desire? Are not your volitions and desires necessarily excited by objects or qualities totally independent of you? End of section 7 Recording by Roger Moline